I have a good friend named uh, Robert Borelli. Uh, m- many of you guys know him. He was actually born again in prison. He, uh, he was a member of the uh, Gambino crime family. In fact, Martin Scorsese's film Goodfellas uh, was all about the crew that he ran with. And uh, he went from uh, a mobster to an evangelist. And um, I'll have a breakfast or coffee with him from time to time. And in his thick Italian accent and his leather jacket, he looks like he just stepped off of a movie set. But he'll say, if I rely on eloquence, I get all that eloquence can give me. If I rely on education, I get all that education can give me. If I rely on knowledge, I get all that knowledge can give me. But if I rely on the Holy Spirit, I get all the Holy Spirit can give me and do through me. And this morning, we are totally relying upon the Holy Spirit as we open up His Word. And as Cassidy said, ask the Lord to hit us like a ton of bricks and change our lives. So if you have your Bibles, open it with me to the book of John. It's a really exciting chapter. I love this. It's about the Samaritan woman at the well. But before we dive into the book of John, let's uh, first uh, take a little trek through the corridors of history. A really interesting way to study history is through the revelations, the revolutions that have um, turned societies upside down. Uh, For example, we can trace our nation's heritage back to the Revolutionary War where our founding fathers and the original 13 colonies uh, felt an indignation that they were having to pay taxes to Great Britain without representation in Britain's parliament. So they signed the Declaration of Independence. They put down their farm equipment and instruments and they picked up their weapons and they fought the Revolutionary War. And, And as a result, what happened was, well, what a revolution is, it's the tide of a current of society completely shifts and overwhelms and even replaces an existing structure. And you fast forward a time and there's the French Revolution where the, uh, the democracy, after a long and bitter fight, replaced the, the aristocracy. And, and we can look at the uh, October Revolution uh, in which um, um, Vladimir Lenin uh, eventually came to power and the Soviet Union, as we know it, was created. And then the Cuban Revolution, which eventually gave way to the leadership of Fidel Castro. Some revolutions uh, were a positive mark on society. Some revolutions were a negative mark on society. And then there's cultural revolutions, the rise of rock and roll with Presley and the Beatles. And I think even more recently, the communication revolution with the emergence of social media. A very interesting way to study history is through the revolutions that have turned the tide of cultures and actually transformed societies. But I believe that the all-time most long-lasting and impactful and beautiful revolution that has ever swept through the corridor of history was the gospel of Jesus Christ that rose in the hearts of men, women, boys, and girls and swept through cultures and civilizations and societies. And what's so remarkable about this revolution was that this revolution was achieved without uh, economic interest. This revolution was achieved without the interest of self-promotion. This revolution was achieved without brute force or manipulation or political coercion. This revolution, the most long-lasting, the most impactful, the most life-changing, society-altering revolution was created as a result of love. Love was the weapon of choice. Love was the force that transformed people's hearts and minds. 
And even empires such as the Roman Empire that sought to crush Christianity could not stand the weight of the love that eventually was the undoing of the Roman Empire. And you can look at the history of the abolitionist movements that, that overthrew slavery and the, 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 the igniting fire that caused these uh, systems, these institutions of oppression to be unraveled was love that was a gift of the Holy Spirit through receiving Jesus Christ as people's Lord and Savior. It's the kind of love that people offer without thoughts of being reciprocated. It's the kind of love that people extend without the thought of being rewarded or or applauded for this love. It's the kind of love that is not deserved and yet it's given anyway. It's the kind of love that's not earned unless, and, and yet it's offered anyway. It's a unique kind of love. It's a counter-cultural kind of love. It's a shocking love. It's a counterintuitive kind of love. It's a love that crosses social and economic and cultural barriers. It's a love that comes at a supreme cost. But it's the kind of love that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, lived, died, filled His followers' hearts with, and then commands us to express as well. And our church must have a conviction, not only for the gospel in which Christ preached, but for the counterintuitive and countercultural graciousness in which Christ modeled. And if our message is devoid of Christ's mission, our message is that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by Him. And Christ's mission is to seek and save the lost, the least of these. If our message is devoid of Christ's mission, then as far as Christ is concerned, our message message does not reflect Him. And it is useless, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, that even if we... Offer our bodies to the flames and have not love that profits us nothing. In John chapter 3, John the Baptist was going to, in Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist was um, the forerunner to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. and, And some people were coming to John and as he was preparing the way of our Lord and Savior to step on to the, uh, the, the public scene. People would be baptized in water unto repentance, and they said, tell us, what must we do? And John the Baptist said to the tax collectors, don't take any more money than you are required to. The soldiers said, what should we do? And John the Baptist said, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. And... This repentance, this reflection of Jesus Christ, it's not simply about what we don't do, it's about what we do in terms of loving and in terms of healing people and being a blessing to people. Jesus went into his hometown and they gave him the scroll and they said, uh, read it. And he opened it up to the place of Isaiah 61 and read one of my favorite passages in all of scripture. And he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. To the poor. And he goes on to say, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners. And the recovery of sight to the blind. 
To set the oppressed free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Christ's mission is focused upon the poor, the oppressed, the blind, the castaways of society. Again, if our message, Christ is the way, the truth, and the life does not reflect Christ's mission to seek and save the lost and those who have been marginalized and cast away in our society, then our message does not reflect the heart of Christ. And Jesus, um, He lived this with passion, with fearlessness, with boldness. A very interesting way to study Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is just to study these Gospels and, and underline or highlight or put an asterisk beside or, or, or outline with yellow every instance in which Jesus stepped across racial, social, cultural barriers and shocked those around him. His intent wasn't to shock them. His intent was to love. But in loving, he shocked those around him in order to love the castaways and the least of these and the marginalized in society. On one such occasion, if you just turn right a page from Luke, when Jesus just talked about what his mission statement was, that he came to to, to bind up the brokenhearted and to preach to the poor, and you just flip the page, and you see that there was a leper in Luke chapter, I believe, 4 or 5, I believe it's Luke chapter 5, there was a leper, it was a skin disease, and their skin was falling apart, it was a terrifying disease in that particular age, and that culture, it was a death sentence, and you were destined to a life of, of isolation. Uh, there were leper colonies in which people were resided to live, and if you didn't have families to bring you food, well then you would just die and you would starve a lonely uh, death. You would starve to death as, and, and it would be a, a, a lonely, lonely life. In fact, from 40 or 50 feet out, if you were uh, on a path and you were walking down a road and you saw somebody or a group of people, if you were a leper, by law, you had to scream, leper, leper, and then everybody would scatter and go on this side of the road and that side of the road and steer as clear from you as possible. And on one particular case, a leper cried out, leper, leper, and no doubt the followers and the crowd around Jesus scattered in many different directions, but not Jesus, not Jesus. And the leper came and he fell in front of Jesus and he said, if you're willing, be clean. And Jesus said, I'm willing. And he didn't just say the word like he said it to a blind person, you're healed. Or like he said to a, a centurion, go, your servant's healed. He touched the leper and healed him. Do you realize that was the first touch that this leper received from another human being in probably years Jesus could have spoken the word. He could have spoken it from 40 feet out. But he stepped forward and he didn't just heal his body, but he healed his heart and he touched him because that's exactly what that leper needed was human contact and human touch. He needed love. And if we follow in the footsteps of Christ, then we are called and we are compelled by the Holy Spirit to step beyond our comfort at any cost in order to love those in which the Spirit is leading us to love. And so with that being said, let's take a look at John and our text in John chapter 4. This is the passage in which Jesus talks with a Samaritan woman uh, who had a really 
shady moral background. And so right here in one conversation, Jesus crosses many social barriers and cultural barriers. He's a Jew talking to a Samaritan. He's crossing an enormous racial barrier. Uh, he's a rabbi talking to a female. He's, ta- he's crossing an enormous uh, social barrier. He's a He's a, he's a rabbi, a, a holy man, talking to a woman who's had a very immoral lifestyle. He's crossing all sorts of religious barriers. And here he is crossing these uh, religious, social, um, racial barriers. And he's, he's doing it because he's fueled by this love. And this is the same kind of love that we are not just supposed to show up on Sunday and hear about. This is the same kind of love that we are to walk into our schools and display. It's the same kind of love that we are to display to our bosses, to our associates, to our enemies, to exes, to whoever it might be, to people who are outside of our comfort level. This is the kind of love that we are called to display. And this is the kind of love that moves mountains. This is the kind of love in which will allow the gospel of Jesus Christ to create a wildfire. So let's read about it. John chapter 4. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees uh, that had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more than John. Although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. Now, a quick context about the Samaritans. Um, There was incredible racial tension in this day and age. Uh, There's still racial tension today in 2017. We see uh, black and white footage and videos of incredible racial tension. Uh, Black water fountain, white water fountain, black schools, white schools. And we know of the civil rights movement in our history there. Racism, unfortunately, is not dead. Billy Graham said the most segregated hour in America is Sunday morning. And I sadly have to concur the church is leading the way in segregation, not integration. And we see that this breaks the heart of God. Um, Jesus went through Samaria. His culture, no different than our culture, was intense with racial divisions and racial hatred. The Samaritans were half Jews, half anything else. Uh, they were a result of the, uh, of the Assyrian attack upon the northern Israel in 722 B.C. When the United States overwhelms a nation, what we do is we try to set up voting booths and democracy and capitalism and McDonald's and all of that. When uh, Assyria, when they ransacked a nation back in 722 B.C., what they would do, what they, would, they would just try to eliminate cultures so that these people couldn't uh, rise up against them. They would take one conquered group and they would export them to this geographical region of another conquered group and take those uh, conquered people and, and import them to uh, Palestine in this particular case. And so what you had were Jews without a culture intermingling with non-Jews who were imported because of the Assyrian um, dominion. And as a result of that, you had a breed of people that emerged that was part Jew and part anything else. And they were called the Samaritans. These Samaritans had Jewish in their blood, and so they tried to worship Yahweh. But because the Jews were very racist towards the Samaritans, the Jews said, you can't worship Yahweh at our temple, not in Jerusalem. You want to worship Yahweh, that's your business, but not here, not with us. And so, that's the Samaritans. In fact, you read some ancient Jewish literature, and they would say things like this, God, thank you that that I'm not a Gentile, I'm not a female, and they would even view Samaritans as a breed of people no better than 
a dog. And this is the racial tension in which the Jews looked upon Samaritans and the Samaritans uh, returned the favor. And so Jesus has to pass through Samaria. And we pick up in verse 4. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, he's walking through the desert, he's walking through the wilderness. Tired as he was from the journey, he sat down by the well. It was about noon. Then a Samaritan woman came to him to draw water. It's about noon. Now, um, all commentators agree that most of the women in this culture would have been there, not at noon, not at the hottest part of the day in this desert, but in the morning, at the coolest part of the day. The reason that this Samaritan woman was there at noon rather than in the morning with the rest of the women was because she was avoiding the snares and the, the sneers and the gossiping and the backbiting because this woman had a reputation, which is the only reason she would have been there at noon, and she was avoiding all the, the condescending and condemning glances and whispers of the other ladies. And so she's there, and Jesus says to her, this woman, he says, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone in town to buy food. So there's Jesus, and there's this Samaritan woman, and Jesus said, will you give me a drink? And with that... Let's pray, and I just want to draw three points out of this text in which we're unpacking and pray that the Holy Spirit changes our lives and our community through it. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that we would no longer be the same, that you would so fill our hearts with the love in which you have displayed to us that it compels us and moves us to love a marginalized, castaway, lost and dying world in like manner as we tell people that you love them and died for them and want to spend forever with them. Lord, let us be passionate about your message. You are the way, the truth, and the life. And let us be passionate about your mission to seek and save the lost. Lord, may we, we reflect uh, this theological conviction. But not only that, in Jesus' name, may we reflect this shocking, radical compassion. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing that we pull from this is that perhaps we need to change our perspective. And that's all it takes to become a fully devoted follower of Christ. Perhaps a little shift in our perspective is all it takes to be filled with this holy boldness and this holy authority in which we walk in this same manner of shocking compassion that opens people's hearts up to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So imagine with me, if you will, that there is a window frame here. And I'm looking out this window frame here. We'll call this one perspective. But then imagine that over here, there's another window frame. And we are looking out this window frame, and we will call this another perspective. And really, it can be as simple. Walking in the shocking love in which Christ changed the world can be as simple is a few steps, just a few steps from this perspective to this perspective. And so the first thing that we see as we unpack John chapter 4 is we have to ask ourselves a question. When we view the world, do we view the world through a perspective of prejudice or do we view the world through a perspective of of gospel potential. Do we view the world through a perspective of prejudice or do we view the world through a perspective of gospel potential? 
Look at these two perspectives unfold. Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, give me a drink. What's he doing? Starting a conversation with her. Notice that he didn't uh, you know, exegete the Old Testament and at this point bring out all the Old Testament prophecies about himself. He didn't dive into the Pentateuch and walk her through it and talk about how Moses was simply a reflection of himself. Nothing of that nature. He simply said, will you give me a drink of water? And that, was it profoundly theological? Perhaps not. But it was shockingly compassionate. And that one statement, Jesus was crossing social, racial, cultural, religious barriers in order to bridge the gap. Because he didn't see prejudice, he saw gospel potential. The Samaritan woman responds through a perspective of prejudice. And she says, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan. Do you see the defensiveness? She immediately puts her boxing gloves on and says, let's go. You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Have you ever known anybody who is in a very contentious relationship, maybe that prolongs for years? I mean, and you just, I mean, you just say the slightest thing and they're ready to fight and argue and my heart goes out to them because I realize, ah, I see, I see what you've been, I, 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 I see the quality of relationships that you're accustomed to and, and this is what you're used to and this is second nature to you. And That's this lady. Her immediate response to Christ was to debate him, to argue. He simply said, will you give me a drink of water? And her response is that of prejudice. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Wow, defensive, isn't she? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. But Jesus didn't respond in like manner. We can't fight fire with fire. We have to fight fire with love. Jesus didn't respond in like manner. Jesus responded not with prejudice. Jesus responded through a perspective of gospel potential. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked me and he would have given you living water. And so with that, throughout our day, throughout our week, Do we tend to live through the perspective, by viewing the world and others through a perspective of prejudice or through gospel potential? We gave a sermon a few months back about uh, how we all tend to have, um, like it or not, subconscious bias. Now, there's straight-up bias, right? The, the, uh, The Palestinians hate the Jews, and the Jews, the Palestinians, and ISIS hates Americans, and Americans, ISIS, and... And then, you know, we've had some recent tension and uh, exchange of words between Mexicans and Americans. And there's these uh, straight up overt biases. But then there's subconscious bias that you might not be aware of. And they do studies on these sorts of subconscious bias. For example, they've actually done studies on it that people in the emergency room uh, are more prone, some percentage more prone to receive pain medication while they're waiting in the emergency room if the people there and the nurses and so forth are are of the same race. It's just a subconscious bias. Um, Interviews tend to last longer when the interviewer is interviewing an interviewee of the same race. Otherwise, the physical proximity tends to have a greater distance between it. Even in the NBA, when there's a close call, refs tend to side with people of their same race than not. These are all examples of subconscious bias. And it's part of of our upbringing and our culture and um, our familiarity and our comfort level. Our comfort level. 
But this shocking kind of love by nature compels us out of our comfort zones. I was conducting a Wednesday night Bible study a few years back. I was tired. I was ready to go home. The Bible study was over. Some people were hanging out. We were talking. I uh, thought, you know, I think, I think I'll just sit down and talk with whoever's still hanging out. So I sat down in one of the round tables back in the fireplace room. And somebody walks up to me and says, excuse me, Shane, somebody's here to see you. And I say, wait, are they here to see Shane or are they here to see the pastor? Because if they say they're here to see the pastor, they're, you know, looking for a few bucks. If they're here to see Shane, you know, I know them. I just kind of wanted to know the conversation I was about to enter into. And they said, I don't know. I was like, okay, yeah, that's fine. And this man walks up. He's a homeless gentleman. And he had a 15-year-old kid next to him. And I'm tired. And I want to go home. I think I had about 20 bucks in my pocket. And I just wanted to bypass the conversation and reach into my pocket and give him the 20 bucks and say, here. But I said, in my mind, I'm saying, okay, let's, let's, let's hear your pitch. So I said, yeah, how, how can I help you? I wasn't interested in helping him. I was just wanting to hear the pitch because I wanted to get home. And he says to me, I, I came here because I want to know how to go to heaven. I want to be born again. I want to get saved. And I said, oh, okay. So I had the Bible. I said, please sit. He and this 15-year-old boy sit down. And I walk him through scripture. And I say, so is this good? You want to commit your life to Christ? He says, yes, I'm ready. So we pray to receive, so we pray to receive Christ. Guess what? The sales pitch never came. And then I looked at the 15-year-old kid with him, and I said, did you want to get saved too? And this kid said, oh, no, no. This is my dad, and we've been praying for him for years to get saved, and I can't believe it's finally here. And I walk them out, and we're at the Black Rod Iron Gates, and I, walk, I watch them arm in arm walk across the parking lot and walk across Hempill Street, and as they walk across Hempill Street, they're practically skipping and walking together arm in arm, and I never saw them again, but then I just prayed, oh, God, How did my heart get so jaded? How did my heart get so filled with bias that I would immediately look and label and size somebody up based upon prejudice and not even consider the gospel potential? And you and I will never lock eyes with anybody that Jesus Christ does not love and he did not die for and he does not long to spend eternity with. And through one act of repentance and trust in Christ and Christ alone, they will immediately be given a new heart that can cut through layers of rebellion and addiction and demonic oppression. But we have to be willing to step out of our comfort zone and just walk a few steps from this perspective of prejudice, where we size people up based upon external criteria, we look and label, rather than viewing people through this perspective, which is what Jesus Christ can do in their life if they commit their lives to Christ, and He at that moment, like a flash of lightning, gives them a new heart and a new spirit. So they begin exchanging dialogue about living water and Jesus um, reveals to her who he is by saying go get your husband and she says I don't have a husband and Jesus said that's right you don't have a husband in fact the guy you're living with now isn't even your husband and before that you've had five and she's not busted 
But she's aware. In a moment, she's aware that her search hasn't been for a man. Her search has been for emotional intimacy that only a relationship with Jesus Christ through the Spirit of Christ can offer. And Jesus brought her to this realization. You've been going from relationship to relationship to relationship but to relationship. But what you've really been longing for your entire life is me, the Messiah, the living water, who can, and only who can quench your thirsty heart. And then we have another option in terms of our perspective. The first is, will we see prejudice or will we see gospel potential? What a potent question. What a life-changing question. Can you imagine if you walk through the halls of school? Can you imagine if you walk through the streets of our neighborhood? Can you imagine if you see kids running around your neighborhood? Can you imagine if you walk through the corridors of your office? Can you imagine if you walk into your own home and amongst your own family? If instead of seeing prejudice where people have been or what they've done or how they look or, or their external conditions, if you see gospel potential, what could happen? What could happen if they commit their lives to Christ? And then the second question that we have to ask ourselves in terms of our perspective is, will we have a perspective of segregation or will we have a perspective of integration? Verse 19. So the woman responds in verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. And then she goes right into... uh, Protecting segregation, protecting divisions, protecting walls, protecting compartmentalizing worshipers of God. And this is what segregation is. It's compartmentalizing worshipers of God. These worshipers are here. These worshipers are there. These worshipers are here. These worshipers are there. And let's build as high of walls as we can to keep it so because this is what is comfortable. But it is not what reflects the heart of God, the mission of Christ, heaven, or even the early church. Verse 20. So she says, our ancestors worshipped in this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place that we must worship is in Jerusalem. And then Jesus responds by crossing these segregation barriers and championing championing immigration. Integration. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming. (laughs) And watch how Jesus right here just destroys walls of division. A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews, Abraham and the line of Christ. Verse 23. Yet a time is coming and now has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. The Father is not seeking people who worship here or there. The Father is not seeking a compartmentalized body of Christ. The Father is seeking worshipers who are one In Christ, for God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And we read in Galatians that in Christ, through the spirit of Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. One of the most exciting studies about the book of Acts is how the gospel of Jesus Christ, the greatest revolution of all time, turns the world upside down. But there's a subplot, a secondary plot, which is not secondary at all, but... It's a, it's a subplot that's, that's quickly the result of the dominant plot. And that subplot is Jews and Gentiles coming together as one church family. 
And once they were together, even the solid leadership, like people like the Apostle Peter, through fear of, of Jews who came to Christ, and now he's the pastor of a mega church, and he's probably trying to avoid this fight and this fight and this headache and this headache. He's starting to defer to the Jews just because uh, he's, probably just, he's probably just tired of divisions and, and, and he doesn't want fighting. And so he's just deferring to Jews to, for fear of their prejudice towards the Gentiles who came to Christ. And the Apostle Paul came and confronted him to his face and said, we are one in Christ, Jews and Gentiles, which is why he wrote Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, female, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ. This is what reflects the early church, and this is what reflects heaven. For in the throne room of heaven, before the throne room of God, there were people worshiping Jesus Christ from every nation, every tongue, every language. Isn't that interesting? That even in heaven, though we are obviously all one in Christ, we've maintained something of our identity and our uniqueness from earth. It's not that we're all the same. We're not all the same. We are incredibly diverse. And God created us this way. And so it's not that we just try to look exactly like one another. We all come from very different backgrounds. Some of you were born and raised rich. Some of you were born and raised poor. Some of you are, 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 are well off. Some of you are, are still poor. Some of you have uh, 5,000 square foot houses. Some of you are homeless. Some of you are black. Some of you are white. We are not all the same. We all have very different backgrounds. But we are all one in Christ. Amen. And the Spirit of Christ so fills our heart that every other difference pales in comparison to the Spirit of Christ that has filled our heart. In fact, we read in Acts, the early church, which is our model, it's our blueprint. We read that they had all things in common. It's Jews and Gentiles from very different backgrounds. Humanly speaking, they had very little in common, but spiritually speaking, they had so much in common that everything else pelled in comparison. And so we celebrate our uniqueness and we celebrate our diversity, but we come together equally as sinners. And when we receive the grace of God, we are all equally the very righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We all come to the table as equal sinners, but when we partake of the meal of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are all equally the very righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And so the first perspective is this. Do we look at life, do we have a worldview of prejudice, or do we have a worldview of the potential of the gospel of Jesus Christ? The second worldview is this. Do we champion segregation in the name of comfort and convenience, and if the truth be known with the churches in the Bible Belt, in the name of economic stability and security? It is what it is. Or do we have a perspective of integration because we so want our church to reflect the heart of God, the early church, and the very throne room of heaven? And then the third perspective that we have to ask ourselves, which really makes or break the other two. This third perspective really determines uh, where we go with the other two questions, and it's this. Do we have a perspective to live for the approval of men? Or do we have a perspective to live for the smile of God? And that's what will ultimately determine the other two perspectives. Let's read in verse 27. No doubt, Jesus had a passion, a singular focus, a singular 
passion to please his father. So he leads this woman to faith in himself. Her heart is overwhelmed with joy. She runs back to the village to say, come and see somebody who told me everything about myself. So while she's doing that, the disciples finally catch up with Jesus and they had food. So let's look at verse 27. Just then the disciples returned and were surprised to find Jesus talking with a woman. Back to that uh, prejudice rather than gospel potential and segregation rather than the heart of Christ, which is integration. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Jesus, he didn't balk. He didn't step back. And then we look at why. And we look at verse 34. Jesus responds to them. When they said, do you you want some food? We went into town to get food. And Jesus says, no, I'm not hungry. And they're perplexed. And they said, he couldn't have had somebody bring him food. I wonder how he can't be hungry. And Jesus said this. He's so stoked. He's so fulfilled. He's energized. However weary he was from the journey and thirsty when he leaned against the well, he has a second wind. He's full of energy. He's full of joy. And he says in verse 34, my food, said Jesus, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So you see Christ's heart here. He wasn't worried about people pleasing. He wasn't worried about what the Samaritan woman would think of him if he initiated a conversation. He wasn't worried about what the disciples would think of him if they came and saw him talking to her. He had a singular ambition, and that was to please his Father in heaven. And whether or not our ambition is to please people, or whether or not our ambition is to bring a smile to the very heart of God, determines the other two perspectives. Will we see the world through a segregation or integration perspective? Will we see the world through a prejudice or a gospel potential perspective? And so how do we respond to this message? We have to know that we've got the words of life. And there are spiritually lost, hurting, and hopeless people in our peripheral, and we just have to expand our peripheral, open our peripheral up, And not worry about what people think, not worry about offending people, uh, not worry about being embarrassed, not worry about shocking people. But we have to step out of our comfort zones and love. Practically, what does that look like? It varies. You know, as John the Baptist said, well, you know, if you're a tax collector and you've been stealing, stop doing that. If you're a Roman soldier and you've been oppressing, well, stop doing that. And, you know, just the list goes on and on and on. If, if, if you see people in need and you've been ignoring that, well, stop doing that. But we step out of our comfort zone and we love. In practical terms, in radical terms, in shocking terms, however that looks, we love. You say, but isn't there cost involved? It's not love if there is not cost involved. Well, what will happen to my life? That's not your concern. It's in Christ's hands. We live to please an audience of one. Great missionary said, God's work done God's way will never lack God's support. When I've had business meetings and people have asked me in relation to Hope Works, so how many giving units does Hope Works have? And, and I like to surprise them with the truth. Especially if it's a banker or something that, you know, has a vested interest in our financial well-being. And they say, so, okay, tell us about your giving units. And, and so I shock them with the truth. And I say, Hope Works, we have one giving unit. Just one. And we are very dependent on this individual. And they're like, you just have one? I said, yeah. His name is God. <laughs> and he, he chooses to provide for us in many creative ways. He's a, 
He's never late, but he's never early either. So he teaches us to trust. But we have one giving unit. That's God. And we are entirely dependent upon him. And he's the only one that we have to please. And he has never failed us. And he never will. Yeah, let's praise Jesus. There are costs. C.S. Lewis said, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and our heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it up carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. Let's not be a church that locks our love up safe in a casket of familiarity and safety and security and comfort. And let's be a wildfire. Let's count the cost. Let's be counterintuitive. Let's be countercultural. Let's love with the gospel of Jesus Christ because we see gospel potential. Gospel potential. If one person repents of their sins and trusts in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they are immediately infused with a new heart, a new spirit, a new capacity, a new set of desires to follow Jesus. I believe that to the core of my being and I've seen it over and over and over. So, would you stand with me please? I wonder how many of you say, yeah, I, I, I want to be Christ's hands and feet. Uh, would you bow your heads with me? I want to be Christ's hands and feet. Raise your hand high. All right. Okay, put your hands down, and I got another question. I, I, I want to be Christ's hands and feet, even if that means loving like Jesus loved. Just put your hand up. Okay, yeah, me too, me too. Father, you see these hands that were raised, that they reflect a heart, that, Lord, we want to love the world around us the way you loved us. And that was sacrificially, um, that was passionately, it was radically, it was shockingly, because you saw the gospel potential in us. That if we come to you and admit that we're a sinner and call out to you to be our Savior, that at that moment, in a flash of lightning, we become the righteousness of God through your Holy Spirit and your child and are heaven-bound. We're unique in the sense that we're special in your sight, but we're not unique in the sense that, that, that that's not replicable. Lord, help us to see souls. Anyone, anywhere has the same gospel potential. If they can just receive the truth, that they can just be convinced of the truth through our shocking love. And incidentally, this is it. I mean, people have to receive the truth. But what opens their heart up to the truth is shocking love. That's why Jesus just dwelt among us. He was a friend of sinners and tax collectors. That's shocking. And it was that shocking love that opened up people's hearts to the gospel of Jesus Christ and transformed lives. I I love the many, many testimonies of Hope Works, of how people's lives were changed and their eternities were altered through the power of the gospel, the gospel potential, and... That new nature was worked into the character through the consistent love of a church family.
Isn't that beautiful? Just there's the gospel potential and the flash of lightning. They're given a new nature. But then, just like a baby has to grow, right? There's an incubator called the church. And through the consistent love, week after week, this incubator called the church draws that new nature into their character. And it shapes their life. That's what's so powerful about the church. That's what's so beautiful about the church. You know what? I, I don't really care if Donald Trump gets his wall or not. I, I, I'm not heartbroken over Bill O'Reilly. I, I, here's the thing. Our hope isn't in Washington, D.C. Our hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The hope of the world is not in the White House. The hope of the world is in the church. Shining forth the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the hope of the world. And then when people receive Christ and that new nature through the consistent weekly, month after month, year after year, nurturing of the church family, that new nature, that new nature is worked into their character. And lives are transformed. and Family cycles are broken. And communities are overwhelmed with life and love and righteousness. So... So if you'd bow your heads with me again, if you'll be an instrument of love, I just want to invite you through this um, response time to come forward and kneel um, maybe in a corner or where you're at, but I'd encourage you to step out and just say, here am I, God, send me. Fill me with your love. Help me to see the world the way Jesus sees the world. And we're starting a series this morning, this was the beginning of it, called Revolutionary Love. And we're just walking through the radical, shocking way that Jesus loved people throughout the Gospels. And um, we're going to do likewise through the power of His Spirit that lives through us. So if you want to respond, and just say, God, fill me with your love. And, um, and then we'll just respond with, with asking God to use us in this capacity and worshiping our risen Savior. So let's, let's respond.